Good afternoon and welcome to the Freedom to Buy podcast presented by Supernet. I'm Joe Dworski, the president of retail banking for Supernet, which is the only payment network that enables true credit card solutions for the cannabis industry for both merchants and consumers. Each week, our podcast will take you behind the scenes of banking, finance, payments, and technology to help educate both businesses and listeners like you on how to make the most of your purchasing power in the world of credit. My next guest is an experienced C-suite veteran, regulatory attorney, and business innovator. She is most well-known for her experience in the legal cannabis industry, where she was an integral part of the pioneering first wave of growth of regulated cannabis from its origins as a legacy and activist-driven enterprise to a billion-dollar legal industry. Earlier in her career, Leah held numerous C-level positions, including CEO of Women Grow, Chief Experience Officer for Four Front Ventures, President of Chesapeake Integrated Health Institute, and Chief Administrative Officer of Ascend Wellness Holdings. In addition, she has successfully exited four companies, two through acquisition, one which created more than a 10x return for investors, and two through IPOs. Currently, Leah is a Constellation advisor with Carney, a leading global management consulting firm working with more than three quarters of the Fortune Global 500. In addition, Leah is the founder and CEO of Gemini Twin Consulting, where she guides cannabis and other business operators through complex issues, including scaling infrastructure, compliance, licensing, and IPOs. Please welcome to today's show, Leah Heiss. Leah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. And lovely introduction. Thank you. But thanks again uh, for being here today. And as I mentioned in the opening, obviously a very impressive resume of success you've achieved over the years. I'd like to start today's conversation by taking a step back and learning more about your early days in cannabis and what drew you to the industry, if you could share with our listeners. I came into this industry as a patient. I was diagnosed in 2001 when I was a prosecutor for the federal government with a disease called chronic pancreatitis. And at the time, I was told that I would not survive five years and that I needed to go home and and take care of my then 18-month-old twins and just survive until I was no longer alive. High levels of pain management with my lovely cocktail of methadone, Dilaudid for breakthrough pain and benzos for to take the anxiety away around pain. That was sort of the pain theory then. Made me pretty much a zombie, wasn't able to work for a number of years. And then I was blessed in 2013 that one of my doctors recommended that I explore cannabis. At that same time, Maryland had passed its medical cannabis bill. So I started to explore it both for a health aspect for me and also as a potential that I'd be able to return to the workforce and do something that was impactful. The plant for me has changed my life dramatically. I'm almost completely weaned off of opiates and I should be done with them by the end of this year. I have not been hospitalized with pancreatitis since 2016 and I was averaging every six to eight weeks doing a stint in the hospital. Some hospitals 
hospitalizations were over uh, six months long. It was a very terrible time in my life, lots of pain, but cannabis has given me the ability to thrive both uh, with my health as well as financially and build a career. And I truly believe that this plant has the capacity to heal all types of situations. It's not a cure-all, but I'm very passionate about bringing the plant and the business opportunities around this plant to the American public. Wow. That, that's a, an amazing story. I'm sure it's, it's been an amazing journey to get where you're at today. It, it seems like cannabis has been able to cure you. What form of cannabis do you take from a medicinal component? I have a specific terpene profile that I like to go with that's heavier, leaning on linalool. My form factor, my preferred form factor is with edibles, though sometimes if I'm very nauseous, I won't be able to do an edible and I'll do um, a suppository that I make out of uh, RSO Mm -hmm. at home. Smoking doesn't work well with my body. It It tends to flare my pancreas, so I avoid it, which is unfortunate because I don't mind smoking it. I just, it's not something that I often can do. (laughs) Has cannabis cured it or is it it considered remission? It's basically in remission. There's no cure for chronic pancreatitis. There's no way to give me back the functionality of my pancreas. And if you look at my pancreas on an MRI, the doctors will tell you that it should be removed because it's completely encapsulated in scar tissue and it's it's um atrophied down to a point where it should no longer be functioning but i do not have diabetes i'm able to maintain my weight i'm able to digest my food i walk five miles a day i do pilates i eat healthy and i travel and i work a lot and all of those things work out okay with me as long as i have access to the plant Wow, that's terrific! Oh, it's, it's glad to hear that you're you're well. Yeah, I'm I'm thriving. Let me jump into success a little bit. Can you share with our listeners what you feel has been your biggest career success and the journey to get there? There's definitely been several career successes. I think initially going after my own license in the state of Maryland and being able to attain that license and build the dispensary and then sell it to Forefront Ventures was a very large success for me because it was very early on. I was coming out of not having worked for a number of years and being so ill and really trying to shift my mindset back into a productive aspect of my life and looking at it through that perspective. It was challenging and it was the very early stages of cannabis in the state of Maryland. We were all trying to figure out what the heck we were doing, figure out the regulations, figure out how to make the company profitable, what partners you should go with, all of all of the things that go along with getting a cannabis license and opening up a store or any facility. And that I think is was a great personal success for me because it allowed me to grow so much as a person. Of course, helping ascend build and scale uh, essentially in 18 months to a public exit during COVID was a was a very, very big success. It was incredibly challenging. A lot of hours, a lot of weekends, Christmases, New Year's, the fastest I have ever run and built in my life. 
But I learned so much about being solution oriented, making strategic decisions, really focusing on business data to make decisions. It was it was a really good experience. I imagine pancreatitis is what was the catalyst to open the dispensary. Is that a fair assumption? That's correct. I wanted to be able to provide access to other people like me that were similarly situated and dealing with pain and other issues that the plant helps. And I really wanted to provide a beautiful location in order to do that. What did you go from forefront to ascend? I did. I was recruited from forefront after we went public. I was recruited by ascent. I was recruited outside of forefront. And I was initially hired as their chief compliance officer. And within two weeks, we decided that we needed a bit of a broader role and they made me chief administrative officer. So I built HR and legal compliance in the back end. Talk a little bit about your four successful exits. You know, in your, your bio, you talk about them a little bit, talked about Ascend, you talked about Forefront, you've talked a little bit about your own dispensary. So there's a fourth, which is the fourth exit. So the fourth was I helped to build conference in the cannabis space. It was called the Cannabis Science Conference. It still exists in the space. We sold it. But Josh Crossney, who was the CEO of that company, had the vision to create a conference that would help educate people on the true science behind the plant, everything from analytical science to uh, innovation and, tr- and product development to lab testing to processing. And it was the goal of the conference to educate both the end consumer and the scientists themselves and the lab analysts and things like that themselves on science around creating products that are healthy for the end user. That conference you said is still in existence. How often is that on a regular basis regionally or is it once a year? They're doing it twice a year. Can you share with our audience What's been your biggest career failure and what did you learn and take away from this failure to become a better leader and person for that matter? Sure. I think probably for me, it would have been CEO of Women Grow. I went in to see as CEO of Women Grow early in 2016 while I was waiting for the dispensary to be approved. And I wasn't super familiar with the business model. I think that it had the capacity to be a good organization, and it still is an organization that's in existence and really helps social equity equity groups get a voice into the industry. But the model wasn't conducive for partnerships with the, the chapters at the chapter levels. Too much money was coming out of there. There's a way to do what Women Grow was trying to do in the industry in a different way, I think. And reflecting back on it, I could have persevered, I think, through it. My dispensary ended up getting awarded. I needed to go in and get that that project up and running. But I think I could have persevered through some of the the bad press the company was getting that was frustrating to me. We were getting accused of not being diverse, which I worked very hard on doing. But it really helped me build a better mindset around facing adversity in terms of my reputation, which is hard to try to not be so defensive and take everything as a personal attack. You don't sound like the type of person that would take things that way. You seem very level-headed and 
I would imagine through your your journey, maybe you became that way, but you just seem to me to be very level-headed. And you know, to be a CEO, you got to be a good listener. You got to be able to also control your emotions and have that level of emotional intelligence. Seems to me you have that. Yeah, I think I've always had that level of emotional intelligence, and I am definitely the calm in the storm on the outside. Yeah, I hear you there. (laughs) Always not so calm, right? So I also think I had a bit of imposter syndrome and and still do at times. It's something I still struggle with. And I'm sure many people struggle with it. People will say to me, wow, you've done so much in cannabis. And okay, part of me feels like I was privileged to walk into the situations that I walked into and maybe it wasn't me. Um, all of those impostery thoughts that pop into your head that maybe you're not as smart as you think you are. I and I try to stay humble. <laughs> yeah, no, well, hum- being humble is very important. I think, listen, it's human nature. I think everybody has feelings of doubt, inadequacy. I don't care what position in life you're in. They can tell you they feel a certain way, but it's just human nature. And my dad used to always say, I'd rather be lucky in business than smart. There are a lot of people who are lucky are in the right place at the right time. Exactly that. I was in the right place at the right time. And not that I'm not intelligent. I just, I had the opportunity to walk into the industry at a time when money was flowing in, when we really could build entire companies with duct tape and paper clips and and get to execution and and not necessarily build the companies that we need to build for long-term sustainability. And now they're going back and building those things. So I think I was really blessed timing-wise. Taking risk is is a very difficult thing for people to overcome oftentimes. Certainly, my family was a little shocked when I said I was going into cannabis initially, but my husband, who's wonderful, he believed in me a hundred percent and we scraped money out of the retirement accounts and he said, You're gonna you're gonna do this and here you go and let's go. Hearing, you know, that you you took that risk to, you know, get into the cannabis space, is it fair to say your personal journey and struggles early on helped, you know, helped you make that leap into the industry? Would you would you have not done that if you know you didn't you know, have the health issues that you, um, you know, had to address? I, I think I would not. I think, um, I do think everything happens for a reason. I think perhaps this disease was put in my path, one, to give me an opportunity to stay home with my children for a while, but also to lead me here, to do something that is larger than myself and impactful to society at large. It did give me a comfort of what's the worst thing that could happen? It's, I'm not going to die from it. I'm not going to die from opening up a company or attempting to open up a company. So, okay, let's go. How do you think your journey and the health issues that you uh, had early on changed you personally as well as professionally? Yeah, it they it changed me dramatically. It certainly made me less reactive of a of a human. I, you know, in our early 20s, we're fairly reactive and emotional and take things very personally. I think through my health journey, I learned to really process my emotion a little bit better and not be as controlled by emotion. 
uh, as I was at an earlier age, which maybe you're hearing in, in the level of motion discussion we talked about. And certainly business-wise, I've always been deep into research and wanting to understand things. My health journey, I did a lot of research to figure out which direction I could go in. And it's carried over into my professional life. I'm very curious about all different aspects of business and different ways to do things, wanting to do things that are disruptive, innovative, really make impactful changes. My focus was on making sure I would survive for my children and my husband and providing a good life for them. And then once I had the opportunity to actually get back into the workforce, it just gave me even more motivation to build generational wealth for my family, but also help other people do the same. You weren't doing it to build the wealth. The wealth found its way to you because of your passion for this industry, for what it's done for you. So, you know, you were doing something with a passion behind it very successfully, to say the least. Okay. And that led to your wealth. I think that's right. And certainly with the stocks, it's not as much wealth as it was before. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you got in and out at the right time. <laughs> yes. I still have, I'm still a shareholder in the companies. I'm in this for the long game. I don't believe that this was a green rush or that it's going to happen quick. I think this is going to be something we build for as a long-term sustainable industry that will really make a lot of profits for people, but also make a lot of people very healthy. Yes. Right now, it's a challenging time to say the least with what's going on. Everything basically in flux, if you will. With what's going on in Washington and all the proposed legislation can you talk a little bit about that, you know, 280E, safe banking, rescheduling, all these headlines that we're hearing of, and how do you see this playing out and, and the obstacles uh, to achieving, you know, the success that everybody is looking for in the industry? I mean, certainly 280E is one of the largest obstacles the industry faces in terms of creating successful businesses. No business should be taxed at a virtually 72% tax rate. The margins that you have to create inside your business in a market that has massive price compression is, are not high enough to maintain your labor force, to do scale, to market appropriately, to do the level of business analysis that you need, unless you have massive scale or you have a ton of access to capital which is why we're seeing a lot of the MSOs and in the level of debt that we are seeing them in. And then we're seeing independent operators not be able to, to scale or even stay operational and pay their bills. And 280E, that tax policy is a real burden on the industry. I think we're at a pivotal time in, ter in terms of cannabis policy. It's the most momentum we've seen from a variety of branches, which is encouraging to me that we're seeing not only legislative action, but we're also seeing executive branch action. And the two of them coinciding, I think, can create real momentum for the industry as long as they do, they do it correctly. And that's yet to be seen. I don't believe a single state that's done this yet has rolled it out appropriately. And certainly there's states like New York that have really blown it. So hopefully the federal government coming in won't make it more regulated 
than we already are. We're an incredibly overregulated industry. Uh, we create an illicit market and we encourage the illicit market with the level of overregulation that we have. And I'd love to see that roll back a little bit. I think in terms of rescheduling, the biggest issue we'll have is whether or not it passes the treaty uh, test. But I think, I think because nobody's really enforcing that treaty at this point, that we should be able to pass. And I'm hopeful we see some movement on all of this in the next few months. Okay. Yeah. It would be nice because I know at the end of last year, they were talking about, you know, safe banking and trying to get it in by the end of the year. And you know, obviously with what goes on in Washington, it's, it's always a challenge, but it sounds like, you know, based on what you've just outlined, uh, and it, it kind of leads into my next question, but you've answered part of it. It's very, it sounds like it's very tough to make money as an MSO or a single dispensary, uh, maybe a grower as well. It sounds like it's very challenging with all the excessive taxes and expenses in the space to, to be profitable. Is, is that fair to say based on very fair. And and people do view the the large MSOs as sort of these huge conglomerates that have tons of money. They don't. I mean, you can look at the performance and see on the quarterlies and things like that how, how they're doing and how leveraged they are in order to be able to attempt to stay in a in slope, right? And we need, we do need MSOs in this industry right now because they're the ones that are putting all of the dollars into lobbying. Uh, they're the ones that are making the political moves. Perhaps they aren't the political moves some people want, but we do need them and their support in order to move the industry forward. In terms of independent businesses, also very difficult to make money, but there are ways. You have to be very strategic in determining for in a dispensary, for example, if you're buying product make sure you understand what the margin is that you're going to sell that product at and make sure that you have a pricing and promo strategy built in for that product before you even buy it. Because if you can't make your margins at the end of the day, it's not even worth buying that product. And I also don't see companies really paying attention to their, their assortment of SKUs and they might be selling like 1,200 SKUs, but only 10 of them are moving the needle on any of their money, they really need to be focusing on normal retail metrics and demand planning and pricing and promo strategies to to stay afloat. There is a way to stay afloat and to be profitable in this industry, but you have to be incredibly dialed into your business metrics. You know, I can, I can understand that. Let me ask you, in, in terms of, you know, talking about you know, all the different metrics in there, does payments come into play? Because obviously we know now most of it's cash. Uh, there is no credit card, uh, pure credit card, true credit card available because all the majors have decided not to participate until it's approved on a federal level. And the processors as well don't want to participate. So there's no true solution and most people have to go and use cash. You know, you do have, you did have cashless ATMs and, and, and there are debit cards, but they're being cracked down on. How do you see the payment space playing out? Can that help the industry by having a true credit solution, just like when we go to the cleaners or we go out to dinner or we go to Target or Costco? 
having a true credit solution for the industry would be a game changer. I think I saw one study that said when MasterCard pulled out sales revenue and in a whatever chain of dispensaries, I can't remember what it was, went down 26%. You're also eliminating the ability of a lot of people to get the products that they they need. And they're able to buy other products that are of similar nature on a credit card. Why can't you buy this product on a credit card? And I, I understand there's all these legal ramifications and issues and reputational risk and things for the MasterCards and Aces of the world. But having a viable credit solution is so important to the consumer experience and not just the consumer in-store experience. One of the areas I see that is sorely lacking and we need a really great tech solution for in the industry is we don't have a true e-commerce ability in this industry. And I think that it is very important. A lot of the menus are created by the POS providers. They may not be live, truly live menus. So you don't know what you have in stock and the consumer may come in and that their product is out of stock because it wasn't a live menu that was updated. There's no cross-selling ability on these sites. There's no upselling. When I go online to purchase a product, it doesn't recognize who I am and say, oh, you normally buy Betty's Eddie's products. Uh, we're out of stock on those, but why don't you try this? Or, hey, your favorite brand just dropped two other types of products that we think would fit into the profile that you you like. And I think it's a real lost opportunity for consumer experience in this industry. And it will be somewhere we'll be able to go in the future. But I'd love to see a tech platform come in and fix that. Yep, I agree. And that's why we're we're trying to solve that solution at Supernet. Build this this credit solution. So tell me uh, about Carney. Uh, I know that, you know, in my research, they're a leading global management consulting firm. Uh, but tell me, you know, uh, you know, when you joined and what you're doing for them. Sure. So I joined Carney in April of 21. We've been doing projects in cannabis. Carney is a global management consulting firm. They have large-scale clients. Heinz Craft, they worked on the Heinz Craft merger, Philip Morris, Brown Foreman, which is a large alcohol distributor, luxury retail, Hermes, uh, other types of clients. And they offer a really broad range of services to normally large-scale CPG companies that are in the mainstream industry. So those types of business metrics that I was discussing previously is exactly the type of thing that Carney can come in and do. Carney can come in to an operator and look at your pricing and promo strategy and help you get to one that actually will drive a creative value to your bottom line versus it being just a bunch of text messages that are going out every day and you have no idea what, why you're pricing this thing a certain way or who's getting your promos. They also do large-scale end-to-end transformations. They do uh, acquisition implementation, which is in this industry with consolidation is incredibly important and something I see being done in a fairly disjointed uh, way across the industries. Many times acquisitions are never truly implemented inside of companies and they end up 
wanting to be a branded house, but they end up being a house of brands that are all disparate, working on different systems, different payroll strategies. And that's a tough way to scale. You're also the founder and CEO of Gemini Twin Consulting. Uh, so can you talk about you know what Gemini uh, is doing in uh, the cannabis uh, space with the uh, operators? Sure. So Gemini can do anything below 250 million in revenue. I really like to engage with um, early stage companies, startups, or companies that have hit about 50 employees when they want to start scaling. Um, they've scaled to 50 employees, and they they project that they're going to have fairly rapid year-over-year growth. And and what they're starting to see at that 50-employee stage is that some of their systems that they thought they had created for operational efficiencies aren't working. And things as basic as how do you make a decision holistically inside your company, which departments need to be included? Do you have appropriate delegations of authority? Is your governance set up correctly? Do you have a scaling org organizational plan? What does your structure look like? And what states do you want to go in? Market analysis. I, I do a variety of different works, both inside of cannabis and outside. How big is the, the Gemini team or is it just you? It is me and my daughter, Sydney, who is has a master's degree in public policy and public administration. And then I have a few other consultants that I bring in on the side, depending on what I need. If I needed an in-depth cultivation demand planning analysis or something, I would bring in a cultivation expert that I'm partnered with to do that. Okay, that's great. Okay. Mom is teaching daughter. That's great. To take, to take over the family business. <laughs> to take over the family business one day. Yeah, that would be great. If somebody wants to uh, reach out to you, hire you for consulting within the space or not even in a, any industry for that matter, how can our listeners get more information on you, Leah, and reach out to you if they wanted to have a, a discussion? For Carney, you can reach out to me on www.carney.com and backslash Leah Heist. You'll find information about me and there's a contact form right in there. I also have a website for Gemini, which is leahheist.com. But the best way to get in touch with me, and I'm very active on this platform, is to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Thanks again for taking the time out of your busy uh, afternoon. And based on everything that we discussed and, and the businesses that you're working with, you are extremely busy. So I, I truly uh, appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. I think uh, our listeners are going to really enjoy this podcast when it is posted, and we will you know, let you know about that. Uh, thanks for listening, uh, everybody, to today's uh, episode of Freedom to Buy, which is presented each week by Supernet. You can learn more about our payment network by visiting our website at supernet.ai. You can listen to past episodes of Freedom to Buy at CannabisRadio.com. Uh, you, or you can get the Cannabis Radio app. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Uh, please join us next week uh, to learn more about opportunities uh, from Freedom to Buy in all industries across the board, from technology to payments to banking. Thanks again, and have a great afternoon and a great weekend. <laughs>